tuned in. To the Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill on Radio Live. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Good evening, Ryan Bradley filling in for Graham Hill this week. I'll wave the media stick around for the next half an hour. Then we'll catch up with a circus duo about their airplay show that's going around New Zealand. I speak of Seth Bloom and Christina Jelson. They're with us before nine o'clock. Then we will get sceptical with Mark Honeychurch. He went to church this morning. He took some recordings. That'll be interesting. Will it save our souls? I can't guarantee that, but we will listen. Also, the 1080 debate and the craziness that is politics in America. Speaking of which, John Dibfig's in after 10 o'clock. We talked to Dr. Michael Jack from the University of Otago about the Green Grid Project. And Rachel Buchanan on her latest book, Ko Taranaki Te Maunga. A fantastic chat with a really talented author about her personal story. That's before 10 o'clock tonight here on the Weekend Variety Wireless. The media stick is going to be waved next. Ryan Bradley filling in for Graham Hill. You're listening to Radio Live. Weekend Variety Wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill. I have a lot of fight left in me. I'm not breaking down. The New Zealand Herald published a smear by TV blogger Paul Casserly. The blogger is obviously emotionally disturbed. We will never feel safe again. We wave the big media stick this week in the chair with Ryan Bradley. Nice to have you with us here on Radio Live. Starting with Jerry Brownlee. He appeared on Radio New Zealand on Thursday morning to discuss a phone call he made to law firm Adina Thorne. Now, this issue was about non-compliant steel mesh, and Jerry rung up as a constituent, as a member of the public. He didn't exactly tell them who he was, and he had a bit of a crack. Now, Su- Susie Ferguson from uh, Morning Report on RNZ spoke to Jerry on this topic for about five or six minutes. She grilled Jerry, to be honest. But this is not the point. The point is, Susie then went off topic and asked the Member of Parliament, Jerry Brownlee, something he hadn't been briefed on. Should this be allowed? Let's have a listen. Now, just while you're here, Mr Brownlee, um, if we can ask you just a couple of questions about the inquiry into Simon Bridges' expenses. Do you have a sense of how much this is going to cost? No, I'm not uh, talking about that. Um, I I haven't agreed to come on the programme to talk about it. I I appreciate that, but you are the person who Simon Bridges keeps pointing us towards in interviews on air as being the person who can speak to this. And and what I've said said quite some time ago to you and uh, to your organisation and other media outlets is that the Speaker and the Prime Minister have both deemed that this is an internal matter uh, for the National Party and... We're not making comment. Will it always remain internal? For example, will you ever give out details on this when it's finished? Well, you'll have to wait and see. Are you not prepared to tell us at this stage? 
Well, that would be like trying to predict the uh, the outcome of a test match, wouldn't it? You, you, you well, let, let things run. Let things run. There's a process in place. I'm just merely asking if you're actually going to give out some information at the end of it all. I'm not saying what the information may be. I'm just asking what the end point of this is. Well, remember that the Speaker uh, has indicated that uh, the police know who the person is. Uh, they have indicated that uh, there has been a strong indication that there are uh, mental health issues involved. The Speaker felt uh, they were so serious that he called off the investigation. Uh, so, of course, you've got to consider exactly what the circumstance of any individual might be. Now, you know, on the one hand, you just interviewed me concerned about a young lawyer who uh, had to take stress leave, apparently, after a phone call from me. Um, but then you're wanting us where we know there could be a person with uh, serious mental health issues uh, to be exposed. I think that's an interesting, um, uh, you know, position for you to take. I think Jerry wins that argument quite clearly there with his final comment. But it does beg the question. Should MPs, when they come and speak on the media, have to be briefed or should they be able to answer anything we ask? I guess that's up to you, the listener, to judge your opinion there. But if you take away your political bias, is it only fair that they're allowed to prepare for their answer to questions when they're put under under such public scrutiny? Hmm, maybe Jerry's got a point, but... Susie, regardless, managed to get him speaking on the topic. That was a minute 47 worth, so fairly good work there from the RNZ breakfast host. Jerry, well, like I said, he still dealt with it like the professional that he is. On the other side of the house, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, well, she cancelled her planned appearances on both News Hub Nation and TVNZ's Q&A this weekend saying there was an issue with her diary. Mr Dern's Chief Press Secretary told News Hub Nation on Wednesday that the Prime Minister would not be appearing on the show because he got the date of the interview wrong. Surely it wouldn't have anything to do with the tough week for the government. Claire Curran's resignation, the inquiry into Mecca Faitari's alleged assaulting of a staff member, the apparent ructions over the employment law, the refugee quota and Crown Māori relations. Timing issues, perhaps? Mm, diary issues, they say. Funnily enough, the National Party leader, Simon Bridges, will appear on the uh, News Hub National, has appeared on the Nation in Mr Dern's place. Hmm, interesting there. I guess we can call Jerry up and uh, and have a crack at Jerry for, for putting him on the spot and answering the questions on RNZ. But when it comes to Mr Dern... A bit of a no-show this weekend. Last weekend, and spilling into this week as we continue to wave the media stick, is this, well, it's a, it has lots of racist overtones, this story. And it started off with Heather Duplessis-Allen. And a very, very strongly worded comment in a talkback segment about the Pacific Islands. Roger, thank you very much for calling. I don't know that we need to send the Prime Minister. I mean, the Pacific Islands, what are we going to get out of them? They are nothing but leeches on us. I mean, the Pacific Islands wants money from us. It's the Pacific Islands. They don't matter. So essentially what John Edwards is saying, I mean, like, he's not really overblowing it, is he? Is he? What he's saying is that I have just called 
I have just acted like a genocide perpetrator from Rwanda, I mean, give me strength, by saying that Pacific Islands are leeches and that I'm like some sort of genocide perpetrator. It's bizarre, bizarre. So here, take this one, John Edwards. I will double down on this. I do not regret what I said because I was not talking about people living in this country or the people themselves. I'm talking about the Pacific Islands and the people who run it. Fighting talk there from Heather on News Talk ZB earlier this week. This is where it gets really interesting because RNZ's version of media, Stick Media Watch, they published these comments, which then led to John Edwards, the Privacy Commissioner, wading in on Twitter, where he said, I've been thinking about this since I heard Heather Duplessis Allen's comments on Media Watch NZ this morning. Hey, Heather, words really do matter. Check this out and maybe think twice about calling people leeches or cockroaches or other non-human things next time of which the Twitter storm ensued, and Heather said, come on the show, John, let's talk about it. He declined. But we've essentially had a media watch publish or air those comments by Heather Duplessy Allen, and then the Privacy Commissioner weighed in, and now we're waving the media stick at it. It's a merry-go-round. We're making our own news here. But, yeah... Do those comments have a place in New Zealand? No. Do they on talkback? Well, maybe from the talkback callers, but certainly not from the host, you wouldn't think. Oh, well, Heather's going to stick to her guns on those ones. Also sticking with Twitter, an interesting tweet from Tim Murphy, who is... He's pointed out the difference between the New Zealand Herald's online version and the Herald that uh, you buy in the shops or it's delivered into your letterbox. Tim Murphy's the co-editor of Newsroom, and on the 9th of September, he posted in regards to the two versions of the Herald, the online and the print version, I quote, very globally focused NZ Herald homepage this morning, highdoseofnews.com.au, and Daily Mail contrasts with the print version of the front page, which is local with a substantial piece on how much more New Zealand men earn than women. Now, it's got the picture here online, uh, mystery lingers in regards to 9-11. We've got uh, some sport on there online. Then an entertainment piece about an Australian star battling cancer. Those of you that sit back and say, you know what, I don't need the paper delivered. I can just go online. What Mr Murphy's analysis shows is that the online version is completely different to the printed version that's delivered each day. So maybe you're not getting the same news fix by simply going on the website and clicking on what you'd like compared to picking up the paper and reading it cover to cover. And the important thing to remember about the newspaper is there's a start and a finish. Online. Wow. Where does it start and where does it end? It seems an an endless recommendation of articles to read. But I think very interesting analysis there from Mr Tim Murphy that it is completely different to pick up the paper and read the morning paper from the New Zealand Herald as delivered to you compared to going online and looking at exactly what is on there. Maybe you could do that this week. Grab the Herald, look at the front page, 
or pages two and three and see what the main articles are and compare that with nzherald.co.nz. Hmm. Also this week, uh, Te Reo Māori was, of course, in the news a lot. It was Te Wiki or Te Reo Māori, and it's, well, it's easily the most visible and talked about Māori language week that we've ever seen. There was a few issues that got out of hand. How could we possibly as a country go through a week like this without some sort of racist overtones or undertones? I think the most blatant example was the one in the Otago Daily Times where the cartoonist Tremaine, he, he drew a cartoon of a child speaking to his parents and with the blurb, since we been doing compulsory teere or I done real good at it, looking up at his father sitting on a chair reading the newspaper, being waited on by his wife or the boy's mother. So essentially the cartoon is in relation to the Greens wanting te reo compulsory in schools and the boy is obviously speaking very bad English but is saying he's he's done real good at te reo. Some people said online that this was simply an example that our children aren't so good at English. Isn't it hard enough to learn one language? Do we really need to be pushing a second? Others were a little bit concerned that this was suggesting that by learning te reo, it would actually dumb down one's English skills. Uh, Tremaine, he still knows how to get a conversation going over the water cooler, that's for sure. The other interesting, interesting point from the week was this one, and I have never seen an example like this before. And it comes from Emma Espinar, who said this. I got called by the AM show tonight asking if I'd go on tomorrow and talk about Māori Language Week. They've invited Don Brash based on the both sides fallacy. And because I wrote a piece for Newsroom about finding some something to like about Brash, this one time I, I hung out with him. Now, Emma was not very happy at all about being asked to talk about Māori Language Week alongside Dr Brash. She goes on. After all, we can, we can go back to being ignorant again next week. Don Brash and his opinions will still be there and he will still be willing to appear in, at the invitation of our national media, I'm sure. But it's a pathetic attempt to stimulate controversy and ratings doing it during the one week in the year in which we should be able to celebrate the language of our people. So, I've certainly never seen criticism of the media even before the interview has been aired, before someone's even got, got to be on, on the television and spoken about it. Here's an example that someone's come out on Twitter and had a crack at the AM, AM show for who their guest is before he's even appeared. Well, guess what? He never did appear. Maybe the effect she had worked. 
Emma Espinar with some tweeting that that may, we don't know. I wonder if they did take that criticism on the chin and say, why on earth have we got Dr Brash on to talk about Māori Language Week? would certainly seem a bit of a brain fart to invite that particular guest on to speak about the Māori language. I didn't know he was an expert. I wasn't aware that he spoke it. He was the governor of the Reserve Bank, though. Maybe there were some money issues that morning. I'm not too sure. But hats off, Emma Espinar, for, well, influencing the media via Twitter before something had even been planned. A light-hearted note before we take a break here on Media Stick. Triple J breakfast hosts in Australia, Ben Harvey and Liam Stapleton, were pulled off air last week for a prank on their new boss. Every Wednesday, they call it the Wednesday morning wake-up call, their boss had only been in the job a week and they decided, well, why don't we ring up the new boss? I don't think it went down too well. They're working hard. They're the backbone of this nation. Do you have any words for these people? Yeah, I just want to apologise for this segment and um, come see me in my office at nine. Ooh. <laughs> is that another, another hang-up? Yeah. What is it with everyone hanging up on the Wednesday morning wake-up call? Well, that's the thing. The boss hung up, they got in trouble, they were dragged off here, the producer came in and covered for them for 15 minutes after that segment, saying they'll be back soon, they'll be back soon. Well, the next day they rung him up again. People, you have to remember, radio is theatre of the mind. Do I believe for one second they woke him up and he was grisly? Not at all, an absolute setup. Calling it how I see it, pushing the bullshit bell for that one. There's no way that that wasn't a setup. So don't believe everything you hear on the radio, people. This is Radio Live, the media stick on the weekend variety wireless. Life, the universe, and everything in between. The weekend variety wireless with Ryan Bradley in for Graham Hill. On Radio Live. When we wave the media stick around, we're doing so in English, but there are 7,000 languages spoken around the world, and they all have different sounds, vocabularies, structures, but do they shape the way we think? Well, yes, they do. According to cognitive scientist Lyra Boroditsky, she shares examples from language, well, from different languages around the world and talks about the effects that those have. Have a listen. Does the language we speak shape the way we think? These are the Kuktaer people. They live in Pomporao at the very west edge of Cape York. In Kuktaer, they don't use words like left and right. And instead, everything is in cardinal directions, north, south, east and west. And when I say everything, I really mean everything. You would say something like, oh, there's a, an ant on your southwest leg. Uh, or move your cup to the north-northeast a little bit. In fact, the way that you say hello in Kuktaer is, which way are you going? And the answer should be, north-northeast in the far distance, how about you? People who speak languages like this stay oriented really, really well. They stay oriented better than we used to think humans could. Uh, we used to think that humans were worse than other creatures because some biological excuse, oh, we don't have magnets in our beaks or in our scales. No. If your language and your culture trains you to do it, actually, you can do it. Lots of languages have grammatical gender. So every noun gets assigned a gender, often masculine or feminine. 
and these genders differ across languages. Could this have any consequence for how people think? Actually, it turns out that's the case. So, if you ask German and Spanish speakers to say describe a bridge, like the one here, bridge happens to be、uh, grammatically feminine in German, grammatically masculine in Spanish. German speakers are more likely to say bridges are beautiful, elegant, these stereotypically feminine words, whereas Spanish speakers will be more likely to say they're strong or long, these masculine words. Languages also differ in how they describe events. In English, it's fine to say he broke the vase. In、uh, a language like Spanish, you might be more likely to say the vase broke or the vase broke itself. If it's an accident, you wouldn't say that someone did it. In English, quite weirdly, we can even say things like "I broke my arm." Now, in lots of languages, you couldn't use that construction unless you. Are a lunatic, and you went out looking to break your arm, and you succeeded. People who speak different languages will pay attention to different things depending on what their language usually requires them to do, and that has, gives you the opportunity to ask, "Why do I think the way that I do? How could I think differently?" And also, what thoughts do I wish to create? Very powerful stuff there from Lyra Boroditsky. Just how many languages do you know? Most of us only one. I know a tiny little bit of Tirol. I don't、uh, claim to be a speaker of it at all. But I've heard from someone who does know Maori and English that if you know two languages, you have two ways to solve a problem. An interesting thought. Certainly, building off those cognitive biases that one particular language can set up. Linguistic diversity reveals just how different cultures that speak different languages can solve problems or interpret the simplest of things, like bridges, in different ways. Over the past few months, there's been a bit of a debate on free speech, on intolerance. Now, I found someone who you will probably all know, Rowan Atkinson. Of course, he was Mr. Bean. Now, he spoke recently on free speech and intolerance. With the reasonable and well-intentioned ambition to contain obnoxious elements in society, has created a society of an extraordinarily authoritarian and controlling nature. That is what you might call the new intolerance. A new but intense desire to gag uncomfortable voices of dissent. I am not intolerant, say many people. Say many softly spoken, highly educated, liberal-minded people. I am only intolerant of intolerance. <laughs> and people tend to nod sagely and say, "Oh yes, wise words, wise words." And yet, if you think about this supposedly inarguable statement for longer than five seconds, you realise that all it is advocating is the replacement of one kind of intolerance. With another, which to me doesn't represent any kind of progress at all. Underlying prejudices, injustices, or resentments are not addressed by arresting people. They are addressed by the issues being aired, argued, and dealt with, preferably outside the legal process. For me, the best way to increase society's resistance to insulting or offensive speech is to allow a lot more of it. As with childhood diseases, 
You can better resist those germs to which you have been exposed. We need to build our immunity to taking offence so that we can deal with the issues that perfectly justified criticism can raise. Our priority should be to deal with the message, not the messenger. As President Obama said in an address to the United Nations only a month or so ago, laudable efforts to restrict speech can become a tool to silence critics or oppress minorities. The strongest weapon against hateful speech is not repression, it is more speech. And that's the essence of my thesis, more speech. <clears throat> if we want a robust society, we need more robust dialogue, and that must include the right to insult or to offend. Very interesting there from Rowan Atkinson. Our priority should be to deal with the message, not the messenger. He is encouraging free speech that is, I guess, rogue and grotesque and against what you think is right. When someone says something that's completely against what you believe, do they still have a right to say it? Do they? Well, how can you change their point of view if you don't let them say it and argue the toss? That's what he's saying. Rowan Atkinson. He's come out and said, speak. Let them all out. Extreme right. Socialist left. Go on. Come out. Have a go. Doesn't matter what you say. Speak it. Because only then will we have the chance to counter it. Hmm. Certainly one way to to look at the free speech debate. One of my favourite parts of Graham's show, of which I'm delighted to be filling in for this week, is the accent of the week. And I've gone online to steal this one. This person's called Crixus Partene. I mean, I think that's his name. But him and his mates, young fellas, they're down in Gisborne, and they decided they'd be clowns and reverse into the drive-thru. They'd just go to the drive-thru at, I think it's McDonald's or Wendy's. I think it's Wendy's. And they, instead of driving through, they decided to reverse through. We will finish with our accent of the week. Crixus Partini and his mates backing through the drive-thru. Idiot, <laughs> <laughs> you reversing in the drive-thru. Or else it'd be called reverse free, ain't you? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a reverse free today. <laughs> yeah, under us. <laughs> oh, she's taking a photo of us. Classic. That laugh, that has to make you smile. After the break, we will talk to the acro buffs Seth Bloom and Christina Jelson in New Zealand for Airplay, their circus duo show that will be available for you to go and see in four destinations around the country. That's next on Radio Live. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live.
Airplay is a modern circus spectacle that brings life to the air we breathe. Prepare for flying umbrellas, larger-than-life balloons and giant kites to float over your head. Husband and wife team Seth Bloom and Christina Jelson merge their unique circus and street theatre skills with the sculptural artistry of collaborator Daniel Wurzel. And the team are here joining us on the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Hi guys, how are you? Hi, it's good to be here. Hey, great to be here. We just came in from New York. New York? When? Yesterday? Or? Yes. Yeah, yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you find New Zealand? Have you been before? We were here in 2010 at Christchurch for the World Buskers Festival. We've never been on the North Island, so we're psyched to start here in Auckland. Awesome. And the, so you've been to Christchurch in 2010. That yeah. would have been pre-earthquake. Yeah, so. The earthquake was 2011, right? Yeah. So we were performing in that square right underneath the church tower that fell down in 2011. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That was Christchurch, such a beautiful city back then. I'm, I'm glad you got to see it back then. Yeah. Let's talk about your show that you've come over for. It's called Airplay. Uh, what is it? Go for it. Um, it's a combination between us and our silent comedy and a sculptor, a kinetic sculptor uh, who works with air. Mm. He lives in Brooklyn, and we decided to work together to see if we can make a show that uses lots of comedy and then beautiful sculptures. A lot of his uh, sculptures that he has with air are in museums all over the world. He sets up a circle of fans and uses it to blow fabrics like uh, silk and organza high up in the air. And we find a way to actually get that stuff to go all the way over the audience. Wow. But besides the poetry and the beauty, there's tons of funny stuff because there's no way that Christina would be on stage if things weren't funny. <laughs> one, um, of my, one of my favorite parts of the show, she, she, we both climb inside a giant six-foot balloon. It looks like it eats us right there up on stage. Wow. Yes. So you two uh, described as acro buffos. Am I saying that right? Oh, that's yes, what, yes, what's you, an acro yes, buffo? yes. You are, no, it was the name of our first show. Okay. And then people got to know us, and then we got stuck with the name. So it was just simply the acro buffos was our first little act that we did. They ended up performing all over the world and circuses everywhere, and we have since retired because it was highly acrobatic and highly full of juggling, and now we've moved into just the funny. So this story, Airplay, has uh, we describe more as a visual poem. Mm. So it's uh, it's very loose. There's no precise narrative, and and everyone who watches the show ends up putting their own story into it. One of the things I loved about making the show with Christina is that she used to be a ballet dancer. She has a huge history of working with classical music mm. and dance, mm. and we manipulate common objects like balloons and umbrellas in these air currents. But we were able to use her experience with music to help tell a story differently and help people see the objects move in a different way. One of my favorite things in dance is when you hear a piece of music that you perhaps already know, a classical mm. piece, and by seeing the choreography, you see the music now in a new way, or you understand the music in a new way. Mm. And I was trying to achieve the same thing here. So they're ordinary objects, things that you know, you use an umbrella all the time, but to see it played next to whole Jupiter, you you suddenly hear the music in a new way, and you see the object in a new way. and it sort of re-enchants our common world. Also, we've spent so much time touring all over the world, we pick up local music everywhere we go, and mm. we try to bring all the world's music into this show. So you hear something from Italy, you hear something from uh, uh, the UK, you might hear something from the Balkans, you hear something from Bulgaria, uh, all over the... Wait, where else do we Chinese have Chinese pieces. We yeah. have some Chinese music in there. So you get the whole world is in our show. Seth, you started as a professional juggler. Uh, talk to me about your journey personally and professionally to, to to where you are today with the airplay. Yeah, I used to juggle balls. I wish balls. you could see him. He has such a huge grin on his face. Yeah. <laughs> I used to juggle balls, clubs, fire, chainsaws, all yeah. that kind of stuff. And then somewhere along the way, I just wanted to make people laugh. And I felt the juggling got in the way. Mm. And I specifically wanted to work without words. And when you do comedy without words, it can take you all over the world. 
And what's interesting is the juggling has kind of leaked into airplay because we do manipulate a lot of our materials in these uh, currents of air. So you'll actually see a bit of juggling with airplay. I have helium balloons that I juggle. And the problem is if you mm. drop a helium balloon, it goes all the way up to the sky. You can't just pick it up off the ground. <laughs> so the hardest juggling I do now is I juggle helium balloons with my mouth. And has Christina sort of tried to incorporate some some uh, some ballet into it that have put you out of your comfort zone? Or? I actually try to erase the ballet so you don't see a dancer on stage. You see a kid or a character. Right. But yes, absolutely. People who know me and know my background are like, oh, I could totally see so, so your this, training. This really is, I guess, a little bit of a, of a journey, and it's a distance away from where you both started. What what do you think the um, uh, what's the difference between Acro Buffos, your, your previous show, and then moving into Airplay? What did you learn? What were the good things of that that you've brought through to the, this new production? Um, so we started with Acro Buffos, which is acrobatic and kind of bouffant comedy. Yeah. And um, Silent it was a lot. Well? It was silent. Yes. yes. Uh, but it was a lot of hitting each other and falling down almost like a Punch and Judy show. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was very funny. Mm -hmm. uh, all the time. Mm -hmm. And the thing we wanted to pursue with Airplay was how can we be very funny and also very beautiful and poetic at the same time. Mm. And we kept, again, Airplay loose as a story, and it lets people bring their own stories to us. So people might see two kids growing up. Someone might see uh, refugees traveling with their suitcases with all their goods together. Someone told us they saw the story of their whole marriage in what they saw up on stage with us. Wow. And what sort of ages do you think that this really appeals to? To everyone. And it's not just age. It's also anywhere you are in the world. So the reason we chose a story about childhood is because a love story is told very differently. In Asia, it often ends with a sad story. And in Hollywood, it always, in Bollywood versus Hollywood, like it's very different love stories. Mm. But childhood is universal. Everyone has to grow up. And everyone has a very close friend or a sibling. Uh, and so we approached that. But I lost the thread of your question. No, no that's all right. We, we, we carry on. And in, <laughs> and in terms of your own relationship, is there... Uh, there's obviously a, a pretty interesting story I read. You met in Afghanistan? Yeah, we met what two clowns, you? met in Afghanistan and Kabul in 2003. What were you both doing there? So Seth was actually starting a circus for kids in Kabul, and I was performing with a company that worked in refugee camps around the world. So my troupe was coming through. We were performing in front of a bombed out, had no ceiling left high school, and up comes Seth. Uh, did you take a taxi in or something? And you're like, hey, I'm a clown too. We're like, what? <laughs> Crazy way to start. And then we, we realized we both had the same interest in making uh, shows without words that could work anywhere in the world. And we started as clown or comedian partners first. And along the way, we kind of fell in love. Ugh. Well, that's not really quite true. <laughs> along the way, I realized I should spend the rest of my life with Christina. So I told her that long before we did any flirting. And the, and the wedding uh, took place in China. Yes, we got married in Hangzhou in China, which is... Tell me was... about your dress. Oh, right. We were performing at a clown festival that was also in conjunction with a balloon arts festival. And mm. the greatest balloon artist in the world who makes balloon dresses was there. And when she found out that we were actually getting married there, she was like, ah, she's from Japan. Yes, I'm going to make your dress. And I had a beautiful dress made out of tiny white balloons. And it was, ma it was magical. I could never have predicted that my life would end up in that way. <laughs> now, I have to say something about clowns. I don't know if it's true here in New Zealand, but in, mm. in New York, in America, being a clown is kind of a bad word. Well, um, it's got a bit of a scary connotation. People are worried about yeah. it because of wigs and noses and big shoes. Yeah. We work uh, silently. We don't wear any makeup. 
It looks just like us. We do have blue and purple hair. That's about it. So we're very approachable and friendly. But I don't know what people think. In I think Krusty the Clown has scared generations <laughs> of, of children growing up on The Simpsons. You know, the, the funny part is that you go to Europe, though, and the clown is like a very elevated figure. You're the top of the circus or you're very respected. But in the States, it's not so. I guess we're going to find out in New Zealand what people think of clowning. Oh, I, I tend to think there is a little bit of scariness there with clowns, but, you know, children's birthday parties and things like that, it, you know, it's still a fun thing to have around. I grew up with clowns um, being really funny, you know, uh, in terms of doing little magic tricks and things yeah. like that. So, But we're talking the 1980s. Um, times have changed a little bit. The collaborator, Daniel Wurzel, what sort of influence has he brought to your show? Man, that was massive because none of us knew what was going to happen. He... He works in museums around the world. He is like the cats. He's he is high end. This guy is high art. Mm. And we come from the circus and clown world, which is low art, the mm. exact opposite. We're not going to be installed in any museums around the world like he is. Mm. So to have this high art and low art smashed together in such a way that is accessible for everyone, you're just blown away by the beauty and the imagination that he has. And by the way, only one piece in the show is his in, in entirety. All the other sculptures in the show were collaborated and made on for airplay specifically, and you won't see it anywhere else in the world. Mm. So we made new sculptures with him. And then you also have this wonderful silent comedy that is tied together. And because we come from the circus world, we, we built it almost like a secret circus. There's, you know, the juggling and there's the acrobatics and there's like an aerialist, except it doesn't look in a way that you would recognize. You wouldn't know that, that was juggling. You wouldn't know that it was an aerialist. But it's playing the same role in keeping an audience interested and keeping an audience's heart strong. Wow. Perfectly said. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, I mean, people always say, you know, how do you describe Airplane? Because no one's made a show like this before. We always have a hard time. So we always show them pictures. But if you like dance, there's something for you. If you like theater, there's something for you. If you like the circus, there's something for you. And um, especially if you like music, there's something for you. So we try to catch everybody. And it moves quickly. So there's some part of the show you're not into. The next part of the show comes right along. Talk to me about the circus. The circus 20 years ago was big productions going around, full of animals and things like that. My memory was the Moscow Circus came to New Zealand. Oh, really? And I, I always remember the uh, the tightrope uh, They artists. were so good at tightrope. And, oh. and these, these Russian guys were standing underneath, sort of ready to catch them if they fell. Uh, yeah. That's what I really remember. How has circus sort of uh, changed in, in both your careers? Well, the circuses in the United States are disappearing mm. rapidly. We just had Ringling Brothers uh, die, essentially, after 150 years. And we, in fact, had a contract with a major circus in the U.S., and they went bankrupt the year we were supposed to perform for them. Um, so there's definitely a, a sea change mm. in the culture and how people experience culture and what they, and what they want to see, um, which is normal. It, culture does change. Uh, and so circuses is, is transmuting you see a lot of great new circus coming out of Montreal and coming out of Australia, especially. Um, and even in that circus world, when they see airplay and they know that we're from the circus, they know us already because we've been around the world, they're a bit surprised. It's in a direction they weren't expecting at all. Mm. Um, and I can see the connections very clearly, but I think that we're at like the way that Isadora Duncan was very different from ballet. And yet she is still tied into dance and she, is still t she was still tied into that tradition. We have taken the ideas and moved them forward in a new direction. And the, the other thing that I, I, having done both circus and theater, is that theater is the art of make-believe. Mm. But the circus is real people doing real things. Mm -hmm. And with airplay, it's our biggest uh, you know, what the enemy is gravity because we're working just like in the circus, just like you do acrobatics. So we're always working against gravity with our balloons and our fabrics and our air. But it's everything you see on stage is real. It's really happening. Mm. 
Um, so that's another connection we have with well, this, this world. Well, radio is the same. It's the theater of the mind. Yeah. You are listening and then you're creating pictures in your mind as you listen to people. And I think that's the beauty of radio, whereas television combines both your senses where you're watching something and because you see, you therefore believe what you're hearing. But in radio, when you're just tuning in one sense, I think it's easier to, 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 to make more of it or have more of an opinion on it when you're just listening. But what you're doing in the theater, I think it's really interesting. You're bringing what, like you said at the start, that low-level circus, uh, the way circus is p- performed, and combining it with that that theatre and that high end, and that I, make, that makes it really exciting. N- more than that, I love how you just described radio because you have to have your own imagination involved in order yes. to hear the story, and that's why we perform silently to do the same thing, so that when someone's watching the show, they have to impose their own story and pose what make their world a part of our world i wanted an active audience when we were started creating work i can't believe the parallel to radio it's so beautiful mm. it, it, it reminds me the other day i was looking at cartoons for my 14 month old now i don't want her to have any screen time but i'm lying in bed i'm unwell she's man 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 wants to play i thought where's tom and jerry when i need him and so <laughs> I, I looked up sort of old school tom and jerry and we started watching it together and it's just all to an orchestra as they walk do 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 yeah. do yes. you know and, and I, it reminded me i was like wow listen to the orchestra in the background playing alongside uh, there's, there's no, there's hardly any speaking whatsoever, which is what cartoons are full of talking these days. Yeah, right. And it's just music, um, with I guess uh, a cartoon. And I thought, wow, how cartoons have changed. Uh, but just an interesting sort of, you know, comparison, I guess, to what you I'm guys using are trying that from to now do. On. Yeah, we're going to steal that and take Airplay that to other. Airplay is Tom and Jerry for the modern world. <laughs> <laughs> we're about to you guys in your journey. Is this the start of the tour? Is it the middle? Is it the end? Are you already thinking about what you're planning to do next? Can I tell them? Yeah, you can you tell, tell them. In July, we were in Australia and Hong Kong, and then we went to Germany and Scotland and Canada. Now we're here. Then we go to Mexico. Then we go to China. Then we go to Alaska. And then we end up 2018 in Austria. It's crazy. We're in the middle of a beautiful, wonderful scatterbrained year. Wow, you really know the tour. <laughs> yeah, and we started this year. We brought the new year in with Italy uh, at this year, and we're also in England and the Netherlands and the States. So we've been all over the world. So we've done the show 170 times, and uh, we've been performing it for maybe one year, Saul. This is the beginning of our second new solid year. And is there a show in the future? I mean, right now I am just eating food everywhere around the world, and I'm so excited that I haven't honestly Mm. put my life into the next project yet because... The world I mean, this, is calling. this show's gotten so popular, we've actually had to have three sets of props around the world so we can keep up with demand. So wow. after we leave here, we'll go to Mexico, and in Mexico, there's a different set of props over there. We'll go from <laughs> Mexico to China, and there's a different set of airplay props over there. And so it's crazy. So you've got three, crazy. three versions of, uh, of, of all everything. The, the props. Yeah. Three versions of fans, three versions of electrics, <laughs> three I mean, versions of suitcases. We didn't realize because, of course, we're clowns. We're like, oh, we're going to build a show. We didn't quite think about the electrics. But in North America, they use 110 volts. In the rest of the world, they use 220 volts. So, of course, right there, we have to have a separate Second, set just uh, to fit the electrics. Oh, wow. So talk to me a little bit more personally about you guys. What, what do you do outside of this to get away? What's relaxing for you? Is it just traveling? Cause, you know, well, for Christina, it's seeing birds. And New Zealand is the most perfect place in the world to go watch really? birds. Yes. So I'll leave her to talk about that. We drove from Nelson to Kaikoura, and it's supposed to be like a three-hour drive, and it took us eight and a half hours last time <laughs> because I kept seeing pukikos and, and birds that I wanted to... <laughs> 
My favorite thing to do is just to be somewhere and have a good coffee, a great coffee in New Zealand. No, that's yes. not true. You okay. read like Also, a, read a book. You read like and crazy. What are you reading at the moment? He went through two books on the airplane. Uh, what am I reading at the moment? I'm reading mm. a, a book called Arthur Less. Mm. Um, it just won the Pulitzer Prize. Okay. Great book. But, but, you know, I used to carry hardback books or paperback books all over the world, but Kindle has made it so much easier. Oh, you're I'll, a Kindle fan? Well, no, but fan, I. But, but he has because to. we travel so much. Um, I would just go through a book on an airplane and then have to carry it around with me. So Kindle's a way I can bring like 10 or 15 books on You should be looking up the secondhand bookshops and taking them in. Well, you know, we used to stay at hostels a lot and I would give a book here and take a book there. But this way I can really curate all the books I want to read. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Let's look at where your New Zealand shows are. It starts on September the 28th. You're starting in, in the deep south in Dunedin. That's it. We're starting off in Dunedin. With the albatrosses. And oh, then, you of course, you must see the albatross. <laughs> this the, whole tour is planned by the birds. <laughs> the, the royal albatross colony. And then yes. October uh, 4th and 5th, we come to New Plymouth, the, the TBS show place. Did I say that right, New Plymouth? Yeah, you did. And then October 9th and 10th, we come to Baycourt Arts Centre in Taranga. Yes. And we finish it off right back here in Auckland, October 13th and 14th at the Bruce, Bruce Mason Centre. Oh, fantastic. And it is a great time for the birds. What I love about New Zealand uh, is the tui. The tui is a fantastic... I just saw a, my first tui yesterday. Did you? Yes. Well, the, were the blossoms all out at the moment? on the fruit trees the tuis they just they really go for them they love so are the they like honey eaters they go for the they they're going for the nectar. don't put me on the spot i don't know that <laughs> i don't know that much i just saw a lot of tuis in a blossom tree that's all i can say and so. they've got the wattles like the wattle birds in australia that's right so yeah, i've kind of learned white. the birds of australia quite well and then i get over to new zealand and it's like you have so much more wetness than australia so the birds are going to change uh, anyway i'll stop no, mm-hmm. no, no, no the tui was beautiful but they are <laughs> You, you you probably won't see a kiwi. Well, in fact, you no, won't. No, of course not. Um, but they are beautiful. It's just we've got so many pests that like eating them, like those dirty possums uh, and stoats <laughs> and things. So uh, yes. kiwi, hard to see, but obviously our national bird. Uh, and there is a uh, centre not far from Tauranga in Rotorua that you may be able to go and see a kiwi uh, in captivity, obviously. Sure. But, uh, I mean, we're lucky enough that, that between uh, the gigs on the North Island, we're driving, so we have a little bit of time to stop and take a look look at some of the beautiful sites so maybe we'll do that what do you think and there's a yellowhead down near uh milford sound the little yellow bird there's like a there's a couple birds i've got on my target list and i hope you've got a big fuel card <laughs> <laughs> hey lovely to have you both on the show this is christina gleason uh gelson am i saying that i will correctly? take gleason that is fine but, <laughs> like... but it's gelson <laughs> christina gelson seth bloom uh their show airplay is critically acclaimed all over the world 170 times they've performed it already and they're coming to a town near you Dunedin, New Plymouth, Tauranga and Auckland starting September the 28th it's lovely to have you two in our country uh, I look forward to seeing your show I will probably be, probably be going in Tauranga so uh, hopefully catch up with you guys oh, afterwards you if you do come there uh, stick around we have a little secret for your listeners we do come out about five minutes after the curtain to meet some of the public that stays around so we're happy to chat with you after the show if you do come Seth Bloom and Christina Jelson from Airplay. You're listening to the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live.